Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and, of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering. So please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Now, before we get started today, I do want to address the fact that and I know this is going to go out later, so it's going to take a little while, but I am two weeks ahead <gasps> yeah, on my podcasts. So if you have asked a question previously, just do me a favor and check and see if I favorited it. If I gave it a heart and you see like the opinions that don't matter channel hearted it because it's only, I believe only the creator of the channel can heart comments. Anyway, I will heart them. And that means I've got it and it's going to be answered. I don't heart things that don't get answered. So you will. So if you have asked a question and it's been hearted, but you haven't seen it go live yet, that's just because I'm ahead. And the reason I'm ahead is frankly, so that Sean's not always like barely getting things edited in time. I'm trying to get him ahead of schedule. And so I've been each week for the past few weeks, been trying to squeeze in an extra episode when I can. And so now I have two extra episodes and I feel pretty good. So anyways, just check into that and make sure because there've been a couple instances where I have seen a question come up again, or I put a question in the list and then I'm like, oh, I've already answered this crap. And so I'll have to pull it out and I do my best to remember. But if you, if your answer, if your question gets answered twice, I apologize. You know, there's, there's two episodes where that has the potential to happen, but I've tried to be very, you know, I've tried to be careful. And if any of you are new, welcome to the podcast. My name is Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I have been creating educational mental health content online for over 10 years now. And on the podcast, I get the questions from my opinions that don't matter YouTube channel, which is the YouTube channel I have with my husband, Sean. We have a podcast called Opinions That Don't Matter. It's just total goofiness. Anyways, I ask for these questions over on the community tab of that channel. And I ask for them on Sunday morning so you can pop them in at that time. Without further ado, oh, also, sorry, one more thing, one more housekeeping thing. I saw someone leave a comment this week that said that they like it when I kind of ramble and talk a little bit more and I don't feel like I have to rush through all the questions. And so thank you for that. And thanks for, for enjoying the process with me and kind of not, not minding that I get off track sometimes <laughs> because sometimes I feel like I'm like, wow, I really got in the weeds on that. Sorry. Ooh, okay. But I'm glad that you guys enjoy that as well. So let's get into your questions. And question number one says, Hey, Katie, how do you do? Says what advice do you have 
when CBT doesn't seem to be working. Now, CBT stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, just FYI. I have been diagnosed with Generalized Anxiety Disorder, or GAD, and I know it's supposed to be the gold standard for anxiety. It is, unfortunately, but it doesn't work for everybody. But I feel like it isn't doing anything for me. I can identify what is causing my anxiety and all the distortions in my thoughts and find all the evidence that goes against them to change or reframe those thoughts. But it still doesn't seem to make a difference. And it's been a few months. I feel like all I'm doing is intellectualizing everything. It can, for those of us who already intellectualize, it's going to be not helpful at all. Um, So intellectualizing everything and all the work I'm doing is so superficial and not truly addressing the root causes or underlying issues. So nothing is changing. It's almost as if there's still a disconnect and no amount of thinking is going to change the way I feel, if that makes sense. Overall, I am left feeling like I'm not doing enough and that it's my fault that it's not working. And at times, I feel ashamed to tell my therapist that it's not working and I still feel anxious all the time. It's been a little frustrating and I'm wondering if I'm just a lost cause at this point. No, you are not a lost cause. Everybody's different. Types of therapy can be considered the gold standard. Like, I honestly wouldn't even say that CBT is a gold standard for anxiety. But when you said that, I was like, oh, I could see that people might think that. The only therapy actually that I would call a gold standard standard is that DBT or dialectical behavior therapy is considered the gold standard for the treatment of borderline personality disorder. That's about the only one that I would say, it, you know, most likely will work. But even within that, I've had patients with BPD who do really well with attachment-based therapy or, you know, trauma therapy, EMDR, things like that. So again, everybody's going to be different. And since CBT doesn't work for you, it's not effective. There are many other modalities that can help us. And modalities just means like different styles of therapy or treatment modalities is what they call them. One that comes to my mind for you, especially when it comes to anxiety, and you're not going to like this, and I apologize, but that's exposure therapy. Now, if we have certain things, because you already know what is causing you anxiety, can we expose ourselves to those things and find ways to calm our system down? That might I'm like, I would want to try that out and see if that was beneficial for you. That would probably be where I would go next. And then if you're saying, you know, root causes, like if we know what some underlying issues are, if it is trauma-based, then I'd probably want to go down that avenue, maybe try EMDR or refer you to a trauma specialist. But all in all, I, I want you to know that it's okay that it doesn't work for you. Therapy is such a, it's such a, a, personalized experience. It's something that is so unique to each and every individual that there's no like real way that we have to treat each person, even as an eating disorder specialist who does a lot of CBT and DBT uh, tools and techniques. I don't only do that. I kind of pick and choose from all the different treatment options or modalities, as I said earlier, pull what I like and use that because each patient, like one patient might need a little bit of more I don't know, like tough love or another one might need some, let's say like future focus, like a solution focused therapy. And I don't do those therapies, you know, 100% anyways, but I might pull a couple of things from them. I've also done, I think, is it, I don't think it's solution focused. I don't know if it's family systems. I forget who it is. It's a woman therapist. Anyway, she created a style of therapy that uses the empty chair technique where you like put a difficult parent or loved one in the chair and you talk to them in therapy. It's a way to kind of vent and get that out. I've used that technique, but I don't do just that type of therapy, if that makes sense. And I wish I could remember the style. I might look it up here in a second. But anyway, all of that to say that 
If it's not working, it's okay. And there's nothing to be ashamed of. Everyone's going to be different. And it's completely okay and reasonable for you just to say, hey, you know, I feel like this CBT stuff isn't really helping me. I feel like the tools and techniques are things I can do, but at the end of the day, it's not, you know, alleviating my anxiety. And give your therapist a chance to try something different. Like I said, I don't practice any treatment like 100%. I will pick and choose what I want and go from there and see what resonates, right? And that's why like I th- I see therapy as like us as a team. It's not me having all the answers. Sure, I have potential answers, but I have to pull the right ones out for you, let you look at them, try them out, and you let me know if it actually is effective. Does that make sense? I hope that that helps. And so anyway, that's those are my thoughts. And there are some uh, comments on this. I'm just looking up the empty chair technique because now that I've said that, it's going to bother me. Okay. It is. Why does it not tell me? Oh, gestalt. Gestalt therapy. Thank you. Thank you, Google, for helping. Okay. <laughs> that was just going to, you know, some things just bother you when you're like, I know what it is. Okay. One of the comments on this says, absolutely on point. One of my previous questions was precisely this. What if CBT doesn't work for certain deeper issues? For any of you wondering why CBT might not work for deeper issues is that if it's done in a traditional format, meaning someone does specifically CBT, we don't dig into the deeper issues. We dig into what would be called like a false, a falsely held belief or a deep false belief. Everybody kind of calls them different things, but we're going to try to figure out what these root beliefs are about ourselves. That's about as like root as it gets. And that's because CBT operates on the the belief. And it's not just a belief because research supports that this helps people. Again, not all people, right? But a lot of people that if we can un- like recognize our thoughts, what thoughts are we having? And then identify the feelings that we're having about those thoughts and how that is causing us to act in a certain way, we can change it, right? By just recognizing the thoughts and working to make those more positive. So we focus a lot on like thought stopping techniques, even thought tracking, uh, bridge statements are kind of part of the CBT realm and all the the challenging, right? Just checking the facts, playing it out, all those things I've talked about over the years, those are all CBT techniques. And it's all because of that belief that if we can change our thoughts, then we can change our feelings about them and our behaviors or actions as a result. Because that's kind of how our life becomes our life is through that cycle. That's how CBT is believed to operate and work. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. So anyway, anyway, that's why we don't really get into those deeper issues. Although there is trauma-focused CBT or what they write as TF-CBT, that does dig, like dig into deeper issues, just FYI. So anyways, it says, what if CBT doesn't work for certain deeper issues, which originate in self-hate and a low self-worth? For me, CBT just never seemed to be enough as, as it's focusing so much on cognitive restructuring, meaning thought restructuring and behavioral change and not enough on the deeper underlying emotional issues. I feel like it is limited that way. What if just intellectually changing our thoughts doesn't result in us actually feeling better? While I've been aware of my cognitive and behavioral patterns for years and could write a book on them, my sense of self-worth and consequently my mood haven't improved. So on that note, Katie, do you only practice CBT and DBT? I always feel like you include some psychodynamic elements as well, like addressing transference, attachment issues, inner child work, working on past issues, et cetera. Now I kind of address this and that's really that I 
I see the therapy space as like a therapy buffet. I take what I want and I leave the rest. Now, yes, for many years, I was a certified dialectical behavior therapist. Um, I was certified in DBT. Now you're supposed to keep that up every, I don't know, three years, two years, I forget. And I haven't kept it up in the last like four, five, maybe. <laughs> but I used to run groups in the eating disorder treatment centers that I worked at and did DBT in my private practice for many years. And so I do utilize a lot of those tools and techniques. And I used to do it like very strictly, like I said, running a group and seeing people individually as part of that group experience um, is kind of its own animal and something that is, has been really beneficial for a lot of my eating disorder and BPD based patients. And also I use some CBT techniques, like I talk about bridge statements and things like that, but I'm not exclusive in anything. I'm not married to any like therapeutic technique. I do have favorites. And as you notice, like I talk a lot about transference and addressing it and clear communication and attachment issues, boundaries, inner child work. I have all of the different tools and techniques for each issue that I find to be the most effective in my experience. Now that might not work. Like you might come to see me in my practice and be like, you know, that just doesn't really help me or those techniques that you're using of the inner child work stuff is just not what I need, you know, to each their own. But I try to do my best to like pick from the buffet of what's offered that I, based on what I know about you and what your goals are for treatment, I think will get us there the quickest or be the most effective. Now, am I always right? Not by a long shot. But with my patient's help and support, right, we're working together, then I can come up with, you know, hopefully the best uh, resources and tools for them. So no, I don't exclusively practice CBT or DBT, although I do pull a lot from those tools and techniques, Okay. Now, another uh, comment on top of this said, on the same subject, does CBT work for complex PTSD or PTSD from past trauma as well as anxiety? Following your advice, thank you. I pressed forward through my anxiety and found a new therapist. Yay, amazing. And although she doesn't specialize in grief, she does have some grief work or has done some grief work with adults before. However, she believes that grief is a more pressing issue for me than anxiety, trauma, and PTSD, probably because it's more front of mind right now. Although she would like to assess me for the PTSD, she has asked me if I feel that I should find someone who specializes in grief. Short answer, I don't know. Honestly, I was happy to find someone in my area who works with any of the above, as I've not had that kind of support since last year, and I don't know if I have the bandwidth to continue to look. Still fighting the urge to give up on therapy altogether, as I am still comparing everyone to my first therapist who passed away in January. I'm so sorry. That can be so hard. Should I be looking for someone who specializes in grief, or should I just count my lucky stars and stick with this therapist? As always, any insights you can give would be greatly appreciated. Of course. Now, I don't necessarily think that we are going to need to have a therapist that specializes in grief. I do agree with this current therapist, this new one you're trying to see that says that that's probably the more pressing issue. And that's because it's the current issue. But I, and this is based not even, I mean, yes, I did go through this grief counselor certification down at a hospice in San Diego. This is like years ago, probably in like 2009. So I did do that. And I, I have to be real with you. I don't think that's necessary. All of the tools and techniques that I learned in that certification are things that truly I could have learned in a CEU or a continuing education unit, meaning I have to take these like courses every two years. I have to get 36 hours of courses to continue with my license. And I've taken some of them on grief and they're super helpful and beneficial and I feel like are equally so 
you know, in comparison to that like grief certification thing that I did. So I don't think that's necessary. I would stick with the therapist that you have because in truth, the PTSD and anxiety and trauma are going to be bigger issues. And I would even be, my hypothesis would be that they're also tied to your grief. Trauma and grief can run together or trauma can, or grief can cause trauma. Um, Not that I'm saying that that's what's happening with you, but I'm just saying that I believe that if your therapist can handle the anxiety and trauma and PTSD stuff, that's what I would do. And that's what I'd work on. And I would also use the opportunity to talk through your losses and your grief. She doesn't have to specialize to listen, offer some support and some tools and resources where needed. I I really would stick with this therapist because yes, I'm sure there are certified grief counselors out there like I, you know, was back then. I don't know how long that certification lasts, but I don't really think that I'm more like more well-equipped than any other therapist would be. We learn a lot about grief in school and how to help manage it. And also even going through grief ourselves, any, I feel like any human these days has grieved at some point. And so therapists are human and I'm sure they've been through things and I think that they'd be able to help you as well. So I would push back and just say, you know, with everything going on, I'd really love to stick with you. The trauma and the anxiety have really been taking its toll for years. And I know I'm dealing with grief and that is a big part of it, but I think it's all kind of tied together. And that's what I would do. Okay. Keep me posted. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie, how do you know what to say as a therapist? You guys have the best questions. I get that your education and practice help a lot. Yeah. Practicing the actual experience of doing it is what makes us better. Um, But what about in the beginning, in your first few clients, how do you know what questions to ask so that they are appropriate and you're not uh, surpassing your client's ability to understand where they are at? I love this question. Now, the thing, it's, it's kind of an art form becoming a therapist. And it takes a little bit of time because as in school, we, I had this course, um, it's actually the woman that I sublet. Her name is Dr. Um, or I guess it's Charlene, Dr. Charlene Underhill Miller is her name. And she, she's a, a child. Uh, I mean, she's a, she sees children and adults, but primarily ends up seeing children because not many therapists see children. And she taught a class at Pepperdine where we learned how to actually use different styles of therapy. And as part of our testing, we had to practice giving therapy to another member of our class. And they had check boxes that they had to check as we were, you know, demonstrating a certain style. And so in school, we really get to practice some of those first few awkward questions that you get through and how to probe people for more without as much as possible without them getting defensive. Now, people still get defensive. People still shut down. We all know that. We talk about it all the time. But it really taught me, like, first of all, asking why can, if you, if you don't have enough information and you're wanting more, why can shut people down early on? Now, I have moved past that as I've gotten older and as I practice more and more and as I've talked with more and more of you. That's why I always say, like, be a detective about it and figure out, like, why this is happening. That's more of us working together. And it feel, it's like empowering to say you can be a detective. You can figure out why. But if you tell me that you're doing something like, why would you do that? That can feel very judgmental. So saying just is something I try not to do. Asking why is something I try not to do. There are certain things you kind of learn as you do it. And also asking open-ended questions. You never as a therapist ask yes or no questions. And so you get really good. Again, as you practice, you get really good at 
giving people an opportunity to share with you and to speak with you. And that is one part of me, I think that still exists outside of the therapy space. Cause a lot of you ask like, how do you turn it off? And, and it, it, it's like, it's exhausting to be a therapist full time. So there's no way I'm going to do that in my private life. But I do think that I am probably a very good question asker, <laughs> meaning that when I ask my friends how they're doing, I don't say like, Oh, I'm not even, I am specific if there's like, Oh, how did that one birthday party go? But I don't just say like, have things been good or bad or what's going on? I don't ask a question and offer answers. I usually say things like, yeah, so, so you had that big event with your parents and stuff. Like, how are you feeling about that? What, what happened? Catch me up and let them tell me and ask follow-ups where needed. And I think that's really what the art of being a therapist is, is kind of just a lot of open-ended questions that can go any direction because I don't, while I want to guide you towards your goals, I don't want to guide an answer. I want it to be as honest as you're able to give me so that I'm gathering more helpful information so that next time I see you, I can ask another question. Like I, my notes forever have highlighted bits in them because I'm old school and I write all my notes. I mean, some of them I've transcribed and saved into, you know, these online fault things. But anyways, I used to highlight things in my notes where I'd be like, come back to trip with mom in 2007. Something's there. Don't have time today. And I'll highlight it and I'll come back to it. So even when I ask those open-ended questions, I'll find patients wanting to avoid certain components of it and like take it in a different direction or make a joke about it. And I'll just highlight that in my notes. I'm like, come back to this because that's a problem. Um, yeah. So I've gotten really good at like sniffing out uh, avoidance and defense mechanisms, and then just asking questions to try a different way in. Like I've talked about forever and I'll move on because I know I'm kind of belaboring this. I've talked about forever how if you some people in therapy are open and it's easy and you can walk right in the front door and and get to know them and, and try to figure things out. But most of us have defense mechanisms and I have to like pick the lock at the gate to get into the property. The front door is locked. I got to find like that back window that doesn't quite lock all the way and jimmy that open and get in. And I'm talking about getting in, like breaking into your into like a relationship with you, a therapeutic relationship so that we can do work together. Right. And sometimes it takes a little bit of figuring out where that open window is. And for some people, it's like talking about something that doesn't seem so intense as we work toward something that's more intense. For others, it's like getting them to talk about their children or a vacation they took, right? We can we can get in with our patients into a relationship um, in a bunch of different ways. And it's part of just recognizing that and whether they're letting you in or not um, and trying to ask different questions to figure out like where you're at and what you can do to help most. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but I hope that that helps kind of explain how I how I do what I do. And then there was a comment on this and said, as a follow-up, do you change your style for different clients? Do you have a different delivery of questions like talk at a slower or quicker pace or how so? Are you more gentle versus more tough love for some? Yes, 100%. I mean, I'm always myself in within the therapeutic relationship where I there's always homework, I always follow up. I don't forget the homework. I might let it slide because I know you're in a, having a tough time, but I will bring it up and we'll try it again later. Um, I'll use, like I said earlier, like pick and choose from the therapy buffet. So I'll pick different things that I think might work for this patient when I might not use them on another because, you know, they already got that unlock or they're not there yet because, you know, things are too tough right now or whatever. Right. And so I do change that change with the tools and techniques and how I talk to people. Um, Slower, quicker pace. Yes. Some of my patients who dissociate more, I tend to talk a little slower and a little bit more gentle so that we don't push them into overwhelm. Um, 
yeah. So it just depends on the patient. I totally do change and not, not drastically, but a little bit. And you might notice, like, let's say you had come to see me on your own and then stopped seeing me for years and decided to come back and you came in with a, you know, as a couple, I'd probably be a little different and you'd probably be able to feel that. And then the last question on this said, yes, you keep saying that you like your therapist to call you out on your shit. I do. Does this mean that you are downplaying it? Sometimes I am. Or lying. I don't lie to my therapist. That doesn't help anybody. Or does it mean that your therapist has to be pushy in a professional manner? Or how about when you're asking as a therapist? Thanks. All good questions. So I like my therapist to draw my attention to patterns that I'm already aware of. Because even though I already have been made aware, I might not be aware in the moment and I might allow myself to repeat patterns. And I really need her to call me out and be like, hey, you're doing that thing again that we talked about six months ago. And then like, smack me in the head, you know, not physically, but like with that phrase, like tough love, like, Hey, hello. And then I'm like, Oh shit, I am because I don't always have the, the wherewithal to recognize it early on. So that's what I mean by calling me out and being pushy in a professional manner. Like we all have our defense mechanisms and I can, um, I cannot make time in my schedule to try some of the homework that's really hard for me. Like that forever, my therapist wanted me to be unreachable for an entire day and like go off the grid and just do what I wanted to. And that took me quite a few weeks to to like do because I felt I'm like overly responsible and such a people pleaser. And it was kind of part of the work that we did, but that took me a while to do. So I need, I need her to be pushy because she kept saying like, well, we're, what are you going to try this week? Then give me an idea. Let's come up with some ideas, you know, and so I need that little bit more push than like gentle to mothering. And I, I actually don't like it. It's almost like repulsive to me. I'm like, this is too soft. Woo woo. I need you to be like, Hey, you're here to work. Let's work. But that's just me. Everybody's a little bit different. Um, and I, yeah, again, I don't lie. I might downplay things just because we all invalidate ourselves. So I might say something to myself like, Oh, it's not that big of a deal. And then I'll be like, Oh, you should probably bring it up. Cause like, who knows? Um, so yeah, I'll do that. And then when I ask as a therapist, it depends on the patient. Again, it's kind of like this dance and you want to make sure that you're challenging your patient enough. But if I've asked questions or pushed so much that a patient like dissociated, I take note of that. Or if I find a patient gets a little defensive, they might give like a sharp answer back or make a joke or do one of the things like that I know that they do. Um, That will help me gauge like what I do next time. Because then again, like I might try to get in there a different way, try a different technique, maybe be a little softer, or maybe ask a question about something a little bit differently. So yeah, I hope that helps. And great questions. That's so interesting. It's fun. It's fun to think about, to be honest. Okay, now let's move on to question number three. This question says, Hey, Katie, as kids, my parents spanked my siblings and I, I was spanked too as a kid by a wooden spoon, but not that often, actually, if I think about it, we were always scared when our father would be the one to discipline us. Oh, dads can be so much tougher. My dad was a softy. He wouldn't, he'd be like pretending he was going to be tough and he was never. Now, looking back at that time as a kid, I feel like he was going too far and possibly beating us. Most of the time there would be welts afterwards. So I was wondering, oh, what's the difference between spanking your kids as punishment? And when does it go too far and become abusive and turn into beating your children? Could this also be the reason that I'm reason that I'm scared of men? Thanks for all that you do. Now, truth be told, spanking is not an effective uh, treatment for children. It's actually not. It, it's much more effective to take things away, meaning putting them in timeout. You don't, you know, taking the cord 
for their video games or whatever, or taking their video, you know, their iPads or phones, whatever, taking stuff away is actually much more effective. Timeouts are much more effective. Talking to children, helping them understand why you're upset and what happened and how they could do better much more effective. Now, obviously this depends on the age of your child. Younger children need shorter timeouts because for them, like a minute feels like forever. And then like, you know, a seven-year-old could withstand a longer time and so on. And so to be truthful, spanking actually be, in light of new research is is never a good choice. And because it's so easy for it to turn into abuse, I mean, I'd argue and I don't want to say this is 100% because some people might disagree and I'm not a, a child discipline like specialist. I don't work with children, <clears throat> but I would I would push back against anyone saying that spanking is effective. And I would tell you that there are better ways and please do not do it because when when parents lose their cool, because we're all human, we all lose our cool, especially parents. You're like sleep deprived. People are always needing things from you. Children can be really annoying. God love them, but sometimes they like nag and nag and nag. Trust me, I was a live-in nanny for many years. Holy moly, the amount of times they say your name, ask you to look at them, see something, check something. It can be overwhelming, right? And if we're already having a tough time, we can snap, which is why spanking is never something that I encourage. I could argue that it's always abusive because we found, I mean, in my book, even in my new book, Traumatized, I have a whole chapter about learning. Um, or at least a portion of a chapter rather. And we find through research, like look up the Skinner box. You can look it up. You'll learn that negative reinforcement, which would be spanking when something bad happens, you're trying to like stop an action. They find that it, it is effective. However, it induces stress and fear in the rats that they were testing this on. And it's much better when they're rewarded with a pellet when they do the right thing and not anything when they do the wrong thing. And so again, that takeaway, the not getting the good things that we like is inc is incredibly more effective at, you know, helping children, teaching children, things like that. So if anybody out there, you're still spanking your children, please stop. It's, it's not as effective. It's actually going to cause you potentially more issues. Children who get spanked can turn into bullies, can have their own anxiety, depression, PTSD like symptoms. And so please find a better way to discipline your child. And even little children can understand some things like you realize you hit your brother. That's not okay. So you're going to sit here and time out for five minutes. You have to think about it. Think about what you could have done instead. And then when you tell me what you could have done instead, that would have been better. You can leave from time out. You know, there are things we can do with kids. Um, work with them. Spanking's not, not a good choice. <clears throat> and now and again, I'm not a parent and I'm not trying to pretend that I I know so much better. I'm just telling you from a research standpoint and what we know psychologically, spanking is is really hard for children to deal with. And it, I'd argue that it's almost always abusive. I know that that's probably not a, 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 like a popular answer, but it's the truth. And so to answer this person's question, spanking is is always a bad choice and is is essentially beating your children. I mean, they say like closed fist versus open fist is what they used to always say, that if it's with an open fist, you know, but it shouldn't leave any marks also, which just seems doesn't even as I say that, doesn't that just sound not appropriate? It doesn't leave a mark and you have to have an open, like you can still do a lot of damage. So I just do not think it is good to punish a child that way. I think, I'd argue that it is always be abusive. And then could this be the reason that I'm scared of men? Of course, because if someone spanks us, okay, if a parent is spanking us and it hurts so much so that we are worried about our safety, we could think that they would really, because you said you were always scared. 
that your when your when your father would be the one to discipline you were scared that fear i know people are like i put the fear of god in my children they should be no your children should not fear for their safety when it comes to you they should fear the like i don't even know what the word is that i'd want to use but it's like they should fear disappointing you and letting you down and they should want to do better for themselves because there should be some some kind of parent-child respect going on where there's some conversations about how we can be better people. Now, I know every child has their own abilities, right? Depending on age and emotional maturity. But I'm just saying that that, that I, that's a better place for it to come from when it's like, no, I want to do better. I didn't want to let you down. I didn't want to let myself down, right? And so fearing parents is not a good thing. And so that would be why I would, I would hypothesize based on this, that that could be the reason that you're scared of men because the man, the caretaker in your life that was a male was abusive and you were terrified. And so that's, that's really scary. And I'm sorry you had to go through that. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. Hi, Katie. How many sessions are necessary before trusting a therapist? Good question. I have had 20 plus sessions with my former therapist and I still didn't trust her and didn't feel safe enough to share my trauma fully. That's so normal. 20 sessions would be what? Like not even six months, right? It would be, I mean, if there's four weeks and you didn't miss a week, then we're looking at like five months, I guess, maybe, right? Roughly. Um, Okay. I, I recently started seeing a new therapist, but I'm scared that I won't feel safe with her either. We're already like not sabotaging, but we're, we're already assuming the worst, right? The thought of going to that many sessions again without getting anywhere is super demotivating. What can I do to feel more safe and trust my therapist? To be honest, the best way, so there's not a magic number of sessions. I think for me, it probably, I mean, again, I'm not doing trauma work in my therapy. So just take that with a grain of salt. But I'd say in my sessions, it probably takes me like a month, like four to six sessions for me to feel like I can share what I need to share. Now, again, I'm not dealing with trauma. I am sharing like embarrassing and bad things that I don't talk with other people about because that's what therapy's about, right? Is like ripping open your your like soul and sharing the things that you think make you unlovable or un, un everything, right? And so that's for me. But for a lot, and even in the comments below this, people said at least like six months or more. Um, I've had, I've seen patients for like a year when they finally tell me about their trauma. Everybody's a little bit different. So what I would encourage you to do, these are things you can actually do to start feeling more safe is to tippy toe in the waters of it. Meaning let's figure out, like, and I've talked about this on past podcasts, like the onion layers of what's okay to share and what's, what we're kind of scared to share. And let's work our way in little by little. It's like, you know, before you jump in a cold pool, you might want to slowly let your body acclimate to the cold, the cold water. Let's do that here as well. So I would like you to figure out some things that you can share that make you a little bit uncomfortable, but not that much. And you're like, yeah, if I had a close friend, I'd probably tell her about this and that. Okay, let's work to tell our therapist those things. And let's see how they do. Do we feel validated? Do we feel heard? Do we feel understood? Do they ask follow-up questions that help us feel like they really are trying to get it and understand? If the answer is yes, let's move on to the next thing, little by little. And that takes a little work on your end because you're going to have to put together your list of like from the easiest things to share down to maybe the trauma or the hardest thing to share. And just slowly give your therapist the opportunity to prove that they are trustworthy. Trust takes time to build, but if we don't challenge it 
it won't grow in a, in a speed that's going to help you feel like things are moving forward. Because otherwise, like you said, if not getting anywhere for 20 plus sessions is going to is super demotivating. Well, it doesn't have to take that long. It only takes that long if we do exactly what we did last time and expect it to be different. Because in reality, if we don't give our therapist the opportunity to show us that they're trustworthy, they can't really prove anything to us, right? They're going to show up. They're going to be consistent. They're going to listen. They're going to do all those things. But I assume your last therapist did that too, and you still didn't feel comfortable. And so we're going to have to challenge ourselves to push a little bit more and to see what comes up for us and to see how the therapist responds and, and figure that out. And as the last thing I want to say about this is let your therapist know about this as soon as possible. Tell them that you struggled with this and that you saw your last therapist for, you know, the five, six months. You still didn't trust her and didn't feel safe enough to share anything. And you're going to try to work to make that better. Let them know so that then if there is something they can do or in session, they realize that you're sharing a little bit more, they can, you know, try to help you feel heard and understood and like contained. And yeah, that that's really it. I know it sucks. I know it sucks. It takes time, but it'll be worth it. Trust me. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This says, hi, Katie. How do I stop worrying about my therapist? Even when I logically know that I don't have to, we have talked about my people pleasing. I was going to go there and how being aware of how other people are feeling is a survival skill from childhood. I notice how my therapist tries to make sure that she doesn't look tired, but I can sense things a mile away. Of course, you're like a crazy detective for how other people feel because of the fawning. That's what the people pleasing is if it's in relation to trauma. Um, Never mind that I'm her last client. I notice a million things about her, energy levels, tone, a slight change in facial expressions or body language. We've talked about this, but I feel like I'm doing it more as we get to the deeper work of therapy. Of course, you're being super triggered. All of your little defense mechanisms and survival skills are coming out full force because you're they're like, ah, you know, you're feeling it. Okay. Maybe it's how I distract myself from the real work by focusing on how she's doing. Possible. Yes. Good insight there. I want to bring this up in session again, but I'm worried that it will lead to her trying to make sure she is somehow not tired at all for her last client. I can't do earlier sessions due to work, so there's no way around this. It feels like a trap. I want to address worrying about her, but I'm worried. Look at this double worry, doubling down. I'm worried that it'll stress her out. So we're not worried about how this could affect us if we don't speak up. We're worried about how this could affect her. Look at us doing that people-pleasing again, worrying about other people. Okay. I'm worried it will stress her out if I point it out again that I know when she's tired or having an off day or something. And then I'm worried about being a highly sensitive person, or I'm worried that being a highly sensitive person means I'm also a difficult client because there's no way anyone can hide from me if they are struggling. What should I do? You are not a difficult client just because you're highly sensitive. You are just one of those clients that as a therapist, I know we have to work to contain. What I mean by that is working for you to understand why this is coming up for you the way that it is, because it actually, spoiler alert, has nothing to do with your therapist. I know. Seems crazy. Really? It's all about her. That's all I worry about for now, because that's the one person you can focus on and the the way you can distract yourself from what you really need to do and the work that really has to happen, because that's really uncomfortable and difficult and nobody wants to do that. Am I right? So please bring this up with your therapist. Please talk to them about it. Any therapist worth their salt is going to know it's not about them. I had a patient, this is years ago, tell me that I looked tired and I wasn't tired at all. And I was like, that's interesting. I was like, is that, is that upsetting to you? Do you think that, you know, I mean, this is me though. Cause I was like, I'm like, yeah. So, cause I, 
I smell it a mile away as a recovering people pleaser myself. I'm working in recovery still, but I know where that comes from. And it comes out of a, I don't want to focus on me. Let's focus on you. And as a therapist, we are super trained in the like deflection of that because therapy isn't about me. It's about you and how you interacting with me probably plays out in other parts of your life. I'm just a safe place to do it more and maybe more intensely. So please bring us up with your therapist. You're not a difficult client. This is something that we deal with all the time. And I agree with you. It's you're distracting yourself from the real, the real work by focusing on how she is doing. That's great insight that you have right there. Let's stick with that. Because again, like I said, I had a video that um, went out, it's be like two weeks ago when this comes out after about fight, flight, freeze and fawn. Watch that video. Also just do some Google searching about fawning as um, you know, it relates to trauma. I don't know if that's what you're struggling from, but fawn is usually related pretty much directly to trauma. Not always, but a lot of times. And how that people pleasing could maybe be the way that you try to prevent yourself from being harmed again. Right. And so anyway, there's a lot here. Please tell your therapist, you're not difficult. This is just your coping skill. That's firing way more than normal because you're triggered. Cause you're kind of getting into that, that hard stuff. That would be my hypothesis. Now there was a comment on this and it said, I do this too at times, even though I think for me, it's more about seeing how my therapist is reacting to what I'm telling her. Interesting. Before talking about difficult things, I often think how she's going to react, how she's going to look and what she's going to say. It's not overly time consuming or distracting me in session. I have my own ways for that. If I want to distract myself, like I like talking about her carpet and plants and old time, my old time favorite is drinking water. Is this normal? Yes. I cannot tell you. So my old office that I'm no longer at and, you know, RIP office, so beautiful. I love that office, but had a ton of different collection of art and pieces that I and the lady uh, Charlene that I sublet from had collected over the years and put up, you know, I'd gotten a candle from a patient once I kept it there. I brought in a plant. She had a plant. We had a bunch of different random stuff. This, um, she had this beautiful, like wooden carved, it's like a man holding his head and it's like round wooden carved, uh, piece. And people love that. And oh my God, my patients would comment so much on all the pieces of art. And did I move that table? And I swear I didn't have that coaster last week. So many things to distract it. Totally normal. And drinking water. Yeah. I had a patient used to bring in this huge water bottle. We discussed, it was like eating disorder base, but it was also a distraction. Anyway, yes, that is normal. It's a defense mechanism. It's a way of putting things off or taking our time. I have patients who will try to open sessions by, you know, asking me how my weekend was. Uh-uh. I can tell you it's good. And then I'm going to ask you about your stuff because it's not, I talk about my stuff in my therapy. You talk about your stuff in your therapy. They say, I also notice that when I'm talking about difficult topics, I find myself wanting to look away. Of course, that can even, that can be um, out of shame, embarrassment, guilt, or just the difficulty with what we're saying, having Having the the knowledge in the moment that someone is watching and listening can be too much. Um, a lot of my patients who dissociate will will struggle. They won't even realize they're looking away. So the fact that you realize it makes me think it might be more of that. But anyways, that's very normal. Says so I kind of challenge myself to still look at her and hold eye contact, even if I'd rather look around. I'm not sure why I do this. Maybe to prove to, to myself or her that I'm strong and not really showing weakness, even when talking about heavy subjects. I don't know. You'd have to dig into that. That would be a question that I would encourage you to like be a detective about, be curious because it could be like, maybe we've always felt like we have to hold it together and we have to be the strong one, or maybe it's uncomfortable for the reasons that I said, or is it possible that it's dissociation? I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is. Okay. 
I also have trouble really crying in session. I have been with her for two years and brushed a few tears away a couple of times, but never really let it out. That's very common too. So maybe that's connected. It could be, I always think the crying, yeah, because the strength, if we go with the, with your gut, with what your instinctual thought was or what your insight was into this, I think that it would make sense if you feel like you have to be the strong one always. I would look for patterns in our past life, like uh, growing up or relationships we've had where we're always the one that gets our shit together. Like that would have been a perfect time for me to break down, but I didn't. I picked myself up, pulled it together, right? Um, because I have to be the one to hold it together. A lot of us can believe that, that we're the ones that have to hold everything together. Therefore, when we... Like, so in therapy, the one place we're not supposed to hold it together, it can be really hard for us to let it go. And even probably wiping those tears away, I would hypothesize that you're probably swallowing really deeply, like these really big swallows trying to just stuff that emotion down and pull it together. But I'd be curious. Again, we have to look for the patterns. We have to see if that tracks and if that's correct for us. It might not be. It might be something else, but I would dig into that. But I would agree based on your insight because you know yourself best. It sounds like those are connected. And then the final says, is that a weird thing to do? And should I do something about it? It's not weird, but yes, we should be curious about it and work to change it because not letting ourselves fall apart and feeling like we have to be the strong one, if that's what's going on, can hinder us so much in our life. Not only does it can be really invalidating and minimizing to our own pain, but it can affect our other relationships, right? We can struggle to feel really connected in friendships or in romantic relationships. We can feel like no one really knows us because we maybe don't let them in because we're the strong one, right? We don't really share those deep uh, hurt, pain, whatever we're feeling. Or we can also just be numbed out and not even know how we're feeling. And therefore we can feel like we don't know ourselves. So yes, it's something that I would, you know, look into, be curious about and talk with your therapist about. And the final question on top of this question, it was in the comments, says, I feel like overanalyzing people and really sensing small changes in other people's moods can be rooted in having, especially emotionally, abusive childhoods. I have a friend who is like a six, has a sixth sense for how other people are feeling and she sees right through most people. It's almost creepy how fast she notices when something's off in a situation. Yep. She had an extremely emotionally and physically abusive childhood. And I wonder if this could be connected and to, as to why she's overly empathic. Mm -hmm. And how do you support somebody who experienced abuse if you notice that they invalidate or downplay their own experiences and justify their parents' behavior? Ooh, ooh, okay. So tons of thoughts about this, okay? First, Yes, us being able to read someone else's mood is that fawning and it's so closely connected and linked to childhood trauma and abuse specifically. And the reason for that, as you, I'm sure many of you watched in my video about it, is that we believe that if we can read moods quickly enough and do everything just right to keep people happy, people pleasing behavior, right? Then we won't get hurt again, or we won't get hurt as bad, or the abuse maybe won't happen that day and we can put it off for 24 hours. So it behooves us. It's like our body and our brain are like, hey, this is safer for us. So let's just make sure that we know if people are upset and angry and and do our best to make them feel better at the expense of our own because who cares, right? We just need to not get hurt today. Of course we do that. It makes sense, right? Totally adaptive and totally makes sense. And so I would assume that's where that comes from. She probably has been living in that fawn state of her stress response for her whole life. Um, and she's gotten really, really good at reading people because 
it was the way to keep herself alive and maybe not harmed as much. So, and that's why she's super empathetic and like can read people really well. It's, it's a skill that unfortunately a lot of us have for different reasons, but a lot of that for, especially this kind of situation stems from trauma. Now, how do you support somebody? The best way we can is just checking in and being there and supporting positive behavior, like encouraging her to go to therapy by saying like, it's been really helpful for me. Maybe it'd be helpful for you, you know, and if she has told you openly about her abusive childhood, you could just say that like, maybe it would help with that. You know, you, if she brings it up again, you could just say something like, yeah, I mean, um, I, I've been in therapy for help with stuff in my childhood. It could be helpful for you too. Have you thought about it? You know? And if she's like, oh, I could never, I don't have, I, I don't know if I'd be able to get myself there. You know, maybe she doesn't have a car or something. You could be like, well, I'll drive you or I could, um, you know, we can get bus passes. Or, I don't know. I'm just saying we can assist in some ways. Or if it's a financial thing, you can say, well, I could help out with the copay if if you're able to. There are things that we can do um, just to support positive, but we can't make anybody get better. We can't make anybody get into treatment. So there is that. So just keep that in mind. Okay. Good. Okay. And you're probably a wonderful friend. That's why you're asking this question and thinking about her. And she's lucky to have you. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, Hey Katie, I was sexually assaulted about 10 years ago by a good friend and have only very recently been working through it. I'm so sorry. I just hate hearing stories. Like I hate that people do that to others. I've done a lot of great work with my therapist and various other wonderful resources, but it's weird for me to be moving forward. If that can even make sense. I can tell I've grown so much in the past year, but part of me still wants to wrap up in a blankie and be sad. Of course. How do I find a healthy balance between being sad and feeling like I have my power back? Does this mean I haven't worked through it enough? Thanks for all you do. I learned so much from my videos and they mean the world. Oh, I'm so glad that makes me feel so good. Um, this is a great question. And I think this applies to more situations than just this situation. So hang with me here because it's very common for us to start feeling better and then immediately have this almost like gut reaction of like, fuck, 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 fuck. I don't, I don't think I like this. This is uncomfortable. What does this mean? How am I supposed to be like this? Right? Because we've been living in this other form of ourselves and in this other headspace for so long that that change and that like, quote unquote, feeling good and not feeling maybe so triggered or so traumatized all the time, so overwhelmed, then we're like, we can start downplaying what happened. I mean, like, well, maybe it wasn't that big of a deal then. Cause like, I don't feel, I want you all in all, I could talk and talk about this, but all in all, I want you to talk to your therapist about this and let them know this is happening. Because my guess is that we still need some validation and support around the sexual assault that you survived, right? Working through the trauma doesn't mean that the trauma didn't happen or that it wasn't that big of a deal or that we don't have a right to feel sad sometimes too. It's not, I don't want anybody to think that things are black and white. Like we can process through a trauma and have it be so it's like not really a tough thing to talk about. We don't feel like emotionally charged about it. We can just kind of go about our life, but there's still going to be days where maybe we have, uh, we're really tired, maybe we're stressed out, and a triggering things happen that remind a, a triggering thing or things happen that reminds us of that experience, and we can feel shitty and want to wrap up in a blankie and be sad or do whatever, and that's okay. It's not all better or not better at all. It's more 
most of the time for like, let's say, you know, 75, 80% of my days, I don't feel affected by this anymore versus feeling like 80 to 90% of my days are affected by this. Does that make sense? And so bring this up because it doesn't mean you haven't worked it through enough. There's something in there and I'm curious about it because I wonder if it's something like, like just needing the validation and we feel like we have to sweep it under the rug or like maybe we were being dramatic or I don't know. Do we think that we made it a bigger deal than it was? Are those the kind of things that are coming up for us? Or is it that feeling that like we better wrap up in a blanking feel sad now because we can never feel that way again? Do we feel like that that's what's where this is going? I'm, I'm just curious. Be curious about it and dig into it because in there is our answer. And for a lot of my patients, I find when we finally let go of a trauma, like we processed it through and we were like, oh, I don't have to think about that anymore. Or even an unhealthy coping skill. I could apply this to like eating disorders and self-injury stuff as well. When they finally let go, it feels good. But then it also is kind of scary because we're like, well, then what? And who am I? And this feels weird. And that discomfort can make us want to go back into old behaviors. And that's why it's really important to talk it out. Now, there was a comment on this and it says, wait, yes. Also to add, how do you stop the idea in your head that it shouldn't be a big deal anymore? Ah. Oh, the invalidation. I get stuck in therapy because I feel like I'm making too big a deal about something that happened over six years ago for me. So frustrating. Your girl just wants to be happy. <clears throat> Excuse me. Honestly, I think it's talking about that. Like, where is that coming from? Again, being curious. So it shouldn't be a big deal anymore. Does that feel, does that mean to you? Is that like equal sign that it wasn't ever a big deal? and that we overreacted? Or does that equal, I don't have a right to ever feel sad again? I feel like there's some kind of belief that we have about, you know, getting over it and moving through it to something else. We, we've, we have this connection and I'm curious what it's connected to. So figuring out what that equates for you and then bringing that up in therapy would be super healing and incredibly validating. Hopefully, I would assume so, because just acknowledging that, oh, it doesn't actually have to mean that. I don't know why I'm doing that in my head because we're we're making connections and making assumptions and doing things all the time. We just have to sometimes bring our awareness to it because it's happening without us being conscious of it. And so figure out what that equal sign is. Like, what are we connecting this to? Hmm. That should help your girl get more happy and figure it out here. And the final question on this, oh no, there's two more. Another comment says, yes, and how do you reconcile moving forward with the fear that this means what was done doesn't really matter when it does? Does moving forward mean it's really not a big deal? Like everyone said, no. I, I feel like I already addressed this one, I guess, because moving forward just means it's not affecting me daily anymore because I have coping skills and I've talked it through and I've processed it because I don't want to live in fear and I don't want to live in, you know, complete PTSD lockdown or, you know, whatever symptoms we're struggling with. I don't want to live like that anymore, but it was still a big deal. It was still a trauma. And I think some of that's like how we talk to ourselves about it. But again, it's that equals, right? Recovery doesn't equal not a big deal. Recovery equals I punched that memory in the face and won, right? Like I got through it. I worked through it. I thought it in every way I could think it. I did my EMDR or whatever treatment works for you. No judgments, everybody to their own, but I did whatever I needed to. And now I feel better. Thank God. But it was still a big fucking deal. And we have to just pay attention to how we're talking to ourselves about it because it doesn't, recovery doesn't equal not a big deal. Okay. 
Now, the final one, final comment says, I feel the same way. Half of me wants to grow up and move on, and half of me still wants to be protected and safe in therapy forever. How can we work through this weird space? I feel like my attachment in therapy and wanting to be cared for is preventing me from moving moving forward fully. Of course, bring this up in therapy because my my hypothesis is in some ways our inner child is still a little activated and feels like it needs a little bit more support or a little bit more uh care and compassion and we don't have to stop therapy immediately but i'd like to understand you know what it would mean or how it would feel just maybe do a journal entry about what it would be like if you weren't able to continue therapy like would we fall apart what part of us would be ignited what would we tell ourselves about that Um, What do we tell ourselves about therapy and our therapist? And maybe it's the conversation we're having is more about like, well, I can't do this on my own. Spoilers, you don't have to do it on your own, but that also doesn't mean you have to be in therapy for your whole life. We need to have like a outside support system. So anyways, working through it is really just being curious about why that's coming up for us and figuring out what's triggering it so that then we can work to soothe that. Or maybe there's a little part of us that still needs to process through some components of the trauma. There's no judgment. We're just moving through it at the pace that we can. And of course, things are going to come up. Of course, this attachment and this like minimization and shame, it's all going to come up. So just bring it up and talk about it in therapy and we'll figure it out. Okay. Moving on to question number seven says, hi, Katie, I am over 18 and I want to start talking with my therapist about possible sexual abuse that I sustained as a child. I'm so sorry. However, I still live with the person that supposedly caused my me harm. And I feel like whatever happened to me wasn't a big deal since I'm only remembering these instances now. It doesn't matter when you remember them. There is still happen is still a big deal. Would discussing this be covered by confidentiality, even though the possible abuser is still someone I see in my daily life? Yes, it's still confidential. I'll dig into it. This person isn't in danger of harming anyone else. And frankly, I'm not even sure if I was abused, but I want to tell my therapist what happened because these instances of possible abuse keep popping up in my memory. Additionally, I feel conflicted about it since this person is nice, caring, and financially supportive. So that's something holding me back. Talking about them in therapy feels like I'm violating their privacy. Hmm. Is it normal to feel this way when talking about abuse? Yes. What if the person didn't mean to cause any harm? doesn't matter what their intentions were. Harm was caused. Thank you for everything. Your videos have helped me so much. I finally started therapy because of them. Yay. Amazing. I almost just clapped right into the microphone. So here's how it works. Yes, please, 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 please bring this up in therapy. Bring it up with your therapist ASAP. And here's why. If you're over 18, even if the abuse happened in the past, you're no longer a child. Therefore, we are no longer mandated to report it. We don't report past instances of abuse once you're over the age of 18, because now you're an adult and we we can't like... Um, there was a therapist that left a comment on this. It was a great analogy. So thank you to the person who did that. That was wonderful. And she is correct that through like Tarasov, which is a law, you can look up Tarasov and it'll tell you the law. If you tell me that you're going to kill your neighbor tomorrow, I am mandated to report that. But if you told me you killed your neighbor a week ago, I'm not mandated to report that because the crime already took place. And then that's held in confidentiality. The only thing that could break that would be like a court order or something like that. And so when it comes to abuse, unless the abuser is still around children and you think the abuse is happening to someone else, and that's what we're kind of reporting... I wouldn't have to report anything and your therapist wouldn't either. It's important that you bring this up and talk about it though, because 
these memories are coming back and we need to be curious about them. Your therapist isn't planting them. Repress memories. You'll learn in my book. You can trust them. Research proves that we can trust them. They, why would we make that up? Like, let's just think about that for a second. Why would we make that up? And also the fact that you kind of worry about them and feel bad and you don't want to like violate their privacy. That's all very normal. If, if we were abused, which it sounds like you probably were, we can really struggle with people pleasing behaviors like we've been talking about. We can also have even formed a trauma bond, which I'll have a video coming out about that very soon. Um, a trauma bond to our abuser, which means that like, you know, we felt connected to them and it was part of our way of surviving the abuse, right? If we, it's almost like Stockholm syndrome, it can feel safer to be connected to them. Um, we can even fall in love with them sometimes. That's very common too. So please uh, talk to your therapist. It doesn't matter if they didn't mean to cause harm. Abuse is abuse and they will not be forced to report it unless they're around other children and you think they're doing it again. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay, let's move on to question number eight. And it says, hi, Katie, how do you deal with your therapist or therapy being your only safe space? I've been in therapy for 10 years, not continuously. There were a few years of gap and I've been extremely lucky to keep the same therapist throughout the journey. So the relationship is very strong. I am more likely, um, I more than likely have BPD, OCD, and an eating disorder, but neverly officially diagnosed with BPD thanks to the sucky healthcare system here in the UK. I know. It is pretty sucky. And she was the first person to actually listen to me, you know? There have been many years of learning boundaries after an extremely traumatic first 20 years of my life, and I can never thank her enough for that. It's changed my life. However, a lot of unhealthy relationships have been cut off over the past few years, and pretty much all of my friendships, toxic, have been lost. I barely speak to any family and I'm a single parent to one. I've recently found myself in an extremely low place and just wanting to give up, which is scary because my daughter is my everything. But at these particularly hard times, I recognize how much I rely on the support from my therapist and our sessions. I've had to miss quite a few due to financial difficulties. She's the only person in my life who truly knows me and the struggles that I face. But I also respect that it's just not plausible for me to rely so heavily on on that, and boundaries are extremely hard for me um, to emotionally reason with during these times, of course, especially if we have some BPD tendencies, it can be harder. I'm going to bring this up when I can, um, when I can eventually see her again, but any tips for how to get through these times when there's really no one else we can turn to and would just like to stay in bed? Thank you. Also, I've tried medication in the past and couldn't get a along with the zombie state that it kept me in. It was probably a the wrong medication. I'm not advocating for you trying a bunch of different ones, but I'm just saying that if you felt like a zombie, it just wasn't a good fit. And there are a ton of medications that could be beneficial for you. So don't give up on that as an option. Okay. Okay. Now, if we can't see our therapist, here's the trick. And a lot of you are going to love it. And a lot of you are going to hate it. <laughs> we can journal in whatever form we can type it out, write it out. We can record ourselves on videos on our phone, whatever we want to do journal like we're in session. Since that's our safe place, let's pretend that we're talking to her and talk about everything that's happening and what you're going through and how you're feeling. Let that be the place that you dump and vent it. And here's the kicker. Because we're not in therapy now, please do not go back and read any of these entries. These are things that are just for you to dump like you would in therapy to get it out and to vent it. I don't want you reading things back and getting more depressed or upset or judging yourself. That's not the place for it. And if you struggle with that, after you've written them, I want you to tear them up. And I know you're thinking, Katie, this is crazy, but we need to create that safe place for you, that place where you can get out all you've kind of been stuffing in. And I know it's hard. And I know you're like, well, I could write pages and pages. 
If, if you don't have time, set aside five minutes, set a timer on your phone or maybe 10 minutes and just write what you can. And then later in the day, you can do that the same. But something that might be helpful, just if you're able, I know schedules are tricky and not everybody can has the time for this, but if you could do it at the same time every day, that would be best. And the reason for that is our brain kind of like readies us for sessions and it kind of gets us a little bit more open and vulnerable. And so if you can do that, your brain will start to like, okay, at 3 p.m., I I write for 20 minutes about this. It'll kind of prepare us and we'll find that we're able to get through more of that like stuff that's coming up. So make time for that and do that. And I hope that that's helpful. I know that kind of seems like a simple answer, but truly that's the best. And again, journaling can be whatever you want it to be. If you want to say it out loud in your car when you're by yourself and driving, and that's how you journal, I support that as well. Any way we can imagine ourselves in that safe place, talking to that therapist that we care about and we like will be really beneficial just to to vent and get that out. And also I do want to mention again that medication isn't necessarily off limits. We would just need to try a different one and potentially, you know, have a little bit better care where they're like watching us and asking us what the side effects are to make sure that we feel good in it, good about it and feel good while we're on it. Yeah, I hope that helps. Okay, moving on to question number nine. It says, hi, Katie, how can I get comfortable with the idea of spacing out my sessions and eventually ending therapy? I've been seeing my therapist for about two years now, and I know I've made a lot of progress. I feel really good, but have a lot of sadness and worry about not having her in my life anymore. Do you have any advice on how to bring this up and discuss it with my therapist? Is this normal? And is it possible to end without feeling so hurt? Great question. Now, I have a couple of videos about ending therapy and I have like one that's called like the five must do's. I'd encourage you to watch that because I'm going to touch on a few of those things here. So the first thing is to bring it up in therapy that you feel like you're, you've made a lot of progress. You are considering eventually ending therapy, not anytime soon. So we're not setting any timeline for ourselves, but you're really struggling with the idea of not having her in your life anymore. Now, the reason I want you to bring this up is because when it comes to therapy, it's not like she's not in your life anymore. I've had patients call me, email me, try to get back in touch after years of taking a break. So you don't have to just stop and never come back. You can always start back up. I Like I've been seeing my therapist, Jana, before I moved off and on for years. And I'd go in for a chunk and then take a break and then go back in for a chunk and take a break. You can do that. That's okay. And I think part of it and part of what I've talked about in videos about ending therapy is part of it is going through all of the stuff you've worked on together, which is why I want you to bring us up with your therapist. Going through all the progress we made can make us feel good. It can help us see just how far we've come. It can keep us motivated. And then we can also grieve. We can be sad about the fact that we we like our weekly sessions and it's some kind of like cohesive thing in our life. And, and we can talk about what we're going to miss and ways that we can incorporate that in different ways and take our time. It's not all or nothing. We don't just all of a sudden end therapy. We can. I mean, I've done that because I don't have this reaction anymore. But if we're struggling, we go from a session every week or two sessions a week down to one session a week and then every other week. And we see how we're doing. Um, I think I even did a skit video about ways we can end therapy. I would check that video out because that's really the way it should go where we kind of titrate down and even take a break once we get down to that stage. And then see how we're doing, knowing we can always come back. And just keeping that in your mind, I think, will stop us from getting in this black and white, all or nothing thinking and hopefully keep us in therapy for the length of time that we need, but also allow us to get out when we're ready and continue doing well. 
It's just a process. You've been in it for two years and had that support. Of course, you're scared to not have that support. Let's talk about it. Let's figure out a plan. Let's slowly work towards it. Doesn't mean we have to do it anytime soon. But just knowing that you think it's it's great that you kind of know you're at that place. It, it's just amazing. I'm so proud of you. I'm so excited. So just knowing that you're at that place and you can slowly figure out how to titrate down and and stop and then knowing you can come back, you know, talk to your therapist about it, put together a plan, try to figure it out, what feels comfortable for you. Know it's okay to get sad and grieve and we need to make time and space for that. So don't feel rushed, but I'm really proud of you and all the progress you've made. Okay. Final question. Question number 10 says, hello, Katie. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for all of your work. Your videos and podcasts have helped me so much. I have a question concerning trauma therapy. I recently started and I feel really good about it. Yay. In the sense that I feel safe and I can trust my therapist. But the last two weeks when we started addressing my childhood trauma, I found myself closing in again and pushing her away. I thought I was past this behavior. Well, you were triggered. So of course you did this. But I sometimes feel like I can't help it. She told me now that she feels a little helpless why would she say that? Tell her to shut up. And is not sure anymore if I'm ready for trauma therapy. <sighs> the thing is, when we started, we thought we were dealing with the trauma that occurred when I was 15 and older. But in the last weeks, we discovered childhood trauma that I had not remembered until she asked me about it. When she said that, I got really scared that she would send me home and leave me alone, which caused me to put up even more walls. Of course, of course. I'm afraid I'll never be able to do trauma therapy because of these behaviors. How do I get past this? Thank you. Have a lovely day. You too. I am curious if your therapist is is good at their job and is a trauma therapist. Because that shutting down that you're doing, the putting walls up is just so, it like goes hand in hand. It's like, oh, you have trauma. Oh, you have intense defense mechanisms that could look like a lot of different things. Could be dissociation, could be making jokes, could be minimizing, could be all of these things, right? It's just so common. And for her to say she feels helpless, like what, should you feel bad for her? Uh-uh. No, no. That's not how therapy works. I, I, I'm glad that you like her and you feel safe. So we will try to push through. So I would bring this, uh, it's just so tricky because it's really like she needs to have some tools and techniques and ways to help you better manage this. You could watch some of my videos about grounding techniques and other tools. I know you're shutting down. I don't know if you feel like you're dissociating because we can talk about those grounding techniques, but it might be, uh, this is just tough because those there are things that she needs to do in session. If she doesn't know how, it's not on you to figure it out. So I, I'm just going to pass by that, okay? Because this isn't your fault. This isn't something you need to do. It's actually her fault. You're having a hard time because you you remember traumas that you didn't know. So unfortunately, my best advice is to find a trauma therapist if you have that available in your area. Because I, I want you to be able to push through and I want you to to feel okay knowing that they understand that you're like closing off and pushing people away. That's intuitive. That's part of how we survived, right? We shut down, push people away. We keep it stuffed in. It's hard to open up and let people be there for us. Of course, we've been traumatized. Hello. Um, yeah, and, and we went to her for th trauma. So I'm like, maybe she has another referral because she says, maybe you're not ready for trauma therapy. I just, I just, this does not sound good to me. Now, okay, I'm not a specialized trauma therapist, but I did a shit ton of research for this book here. And that just doesn't sound right to me. I don't know if anybody else agrees. I'm open to feedback that like, Katie, you're way off. This is messed up. You, you know, you should have said that. But I really think that we maybe need to find someone who's a little more well-suited for you 
or I mean, also in addition to, I think my best advice would be to bring this up with your therapist and to say, Hey, I, you know, I do feel safe and I trust you. This is just hard stuff for me. And I don't know how else to cope sometimes other than shut down. And I really, if you can do this and just maybe play this back and write this down and practice saying it so you can say it when you're there, I really need you to work with me to help me push through that because I really want to work through this. And I didn't even know this was here. It was like a repressed memory. And I just need your support as I work to push through because that's really a therapist's job is like to help us recognize right before, like notice when we're shutting down, acknowledge it, maybe the next session, try to find ways to prevent it. I would have you do some homework to figure out like when you felt the most triggered and what the levels of shutdown are. And if you could, if there's anything we could try to find like a tool or a technique to soothe your system so you don't shut down. This is work you need to do with your therapist because in the session, she's going to have to say things like, how are we doing on a scale that we've put together between one to 10? 10 being shut down, zero being fine. And should we try something now, right? Maybe let's get out this thing and let's do this tool so that you feel like you can regulate your system and still continue to push forward and not be overwhelmed so much so that the walls just shoot down. And that that takes practice and that takes working together. So please bring that up with her. Please give her an opportunity to get better and manage this with you. Or let's try to find someone who can, because that just doesn't, I don't know, that just doesn't sit well with me. It doesn't seem right. She's putting it onto you. And I'd argue no one's ready for trauma therapy if that's how they're, like what people, they expect you to walk in and talk about it, have no defense mechanisms, not dissociate or shut down. What, what fake world is this that they live in? I'm very curious about that. So yeah, I hope that that helps. I hope that that, you know, makes some sense, helps you feel heard at least a little bit and understood. You're not weird. It's very normal. They should have the tools to help you feel better. Yeah. I'm sorry. Thank you all so much for listening. Feel free to um, to rate this podcast and give it a review. Share it with some friends. If you haven't picked up my new book, Traumatized, you can get your copy today. Isn't she so pretty? And the audiobook is out into the world. I know. Thank you for your patience with that. Thank you all so much for all of your questions, all your support. I love you so much. Have a good rest of your week, and I will see you next time. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.